Every church since the time of Christ has wrestled with the question of what it looks like to live as authentic disciples of Jesus. And the truth is, Christianity has been evolving since the time of Jesus. What I mean is the, the way things look when we get together has changed. You know, the songs that we sing today are very, very different than the songs they sang 300 years ago. And the songs they sang 300 years ago were very, very different than the songs they sang in the first century. Our, our traditions have changed, our language has changed, our songs have changed, our instruments have changed, our buildings have changed, our clothing has changed, our technologies have changed, uh, even our translations of the Bible have changed. Uh, the Bible itself hasn't changed, but we have different translations. But the message of the gospel has always been the same. The, the goal of authentically following Jesus, the goal of carrying the mission of God to the entire world, these things have never changed. And every generation since the time of Christ has wrestled with what it means to be a, an authentic follower of Jesus. And the truth is, now it's just our turn. This is our time to do this. So we started this series for, uh, called Letters from Jesus several weeks ago. And, and we started it with the thought that since we're not the first to pursue these things, then maybe by looking at other churches that have pursued these things with varying degrees of success, that maybe we could learn something from them. Maybe by looking at other people who've tried to do the things that we're trying to do and tried to be the, the, the kind of people that, that we're trying to be, that we can find some pitfalls to avoid or maybe even find some things that we should pursue. So we started looking at the seven churches that are listed in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. These were churches that all started out with the same goal that we have. That is to pursue the kingdom of God, to live as true disciples of Jesus. And we started out in the city of Ephesus where the church there, they, they looked really good on the outside, but we learned that they had lost their first love. Jesus told them to go back and do the things they did at first. And so we went back to the book of Acts to see what the church in Ephesus, what they did at first. And we, we found out that in the beginning of their church, they were confessing and they were repenting of the dark things they'd been involved in. And the picture we get of the church in Ephesus in the beginning is of this really gritty, really honest group of people that had come together and they said, hey, I've been part of some very wicked things. Jesus, help me. And so we, we talked about coming clean with one another uh, so, so that we can find freedom from the dark things that haunt our lives. Because the thing is, here's, here's the truth. Anonymity and secrecy breed, tend to breed sin. And, and the more secret something is, the more power it has over our lives. And so we need to learn how, in a way, to sort of live in glass houses to help keep us from sin and to let other people in and be honest with them. And then after that, we went to Smyrna. In Smyrna, we find a church that is very, very poor by earthly standards. But Jesus says to them, hey, you, you are poor, but I say you're rich. And in that statement, Jesus redefined wealth for us. There, there is a place uh, that following Jesus will get us to where our soul becomes so wealthy with life that the most desperate and dark situations that could befall us cannot steal our life and cannot steal our joy and cannot steal our peace. Our problem, as we talked about that week, is I think that we just have too many options. That, that maybe the reason that we can never be content with what we have is because we can, we know that we can always have more. We're never content with what we have because we know that we can get something bigger and better. We're not grateful for what we have because we can always get something else. And, and we learned that we need to pursue soul wealth, not physical wealth. And after Smyrna, we traveled to Pergamum. And in Pergamum, they were tolerating the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And the, the Nicolaitans, we learned, is, is, is that many commentators believe they were started, this group was started by a man named Nicholas of Antioch. Now, the scary thing about Nicholas of Antioch is that he is mentioned in the book of Acts, but he's not mentioned as a heretic or as an evil man, but he's mentioned as a leader of the church. He was one of the first deacons that was elected in the church and selected to serve. And, and he fell from such a great height. And so if we want to avoid that, we, have, we learned we have to pay attention to our hearts, the wellspring of the deep, meaningful life that Jesus wants to give us. And we have to take the risk 
of being known well enough to receive encouragement when we need it. But we also have to make sure that we're not so self-absorbed that we see only ourselves. And those are the lessons of Pergamum. And after Pergamum, we went to Thyatira, where we learned about tough love. They tolerated a woman that the scripture calls Jezebel. Now, we, we, we're sure that that wasn't really her name because people don't name, as we discovered, you know, we talked about this, you, people don't name their children after, you know, notoriously wicked people. You know, nobody's naming their kids after serial killers nowadays. And nobody's naming their kids after, you know, Hitler, that sort of thing. And so this is probably somebody else. So that, that week, if you remember, we called her Josephine instead of Jezebel. And, uh, uh, and the problem was this woman known as Jezebel, who was, she was teaching false things. She was leading people into sin and nobody wanted to confront her for whatever reason. Because, and because no one was willing to deal with the sticky situation, this woman who started out with in a good place ended up being known as Jezebel. And so our goal is to keep Josephine from becoming Jezebel. And we talk about the fact that love dives into the water to save a, dry, a drowning family member. And we talked about the process of confrontation that Jesus outlined and how the entire goal of it is to bring reconciliation and to bring healing. And, and, and we talked about the reality that, that uh, the only way that that will ever work is if we have relationships that are deep enough to sustain conflict. Because if my relationship with you is not deep enough to sustain conflict, when I try to confront you with a sin, you're just going to reject me, walk away. And that's what happens over and over and over again in churches all across America. So then last week, we combined two of them. We talked about Sardis and Philadelphia. And we learned that Sardis is our worst nightmare come true. They had a reputation that they were alive, but they were dead. They had learned to play the game, but the Holy Spirit of, of Christ was nowhere to be uh, found inside of them. And you know what? It is so easy to get sucked into playing the game rather than actually engaging the Spirit of God. Jesus invites us to life. That's his message. The message of Jesus, we said, is not shame on you. His message is, won't you come to life? And Jesus tells us to wake up and to strengthen what remains. But that doesn't mean that you get out your checklist and, 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 you, and you try to keep your, your list of do's and don'ts. In order to strengthen what remains, what we learned was that we need to learn to ask the right question. And I believe the question that we have to learn to ask is, does this activity, does this group of people, does this thing stir my affections for Jesus or does it rob me of them? Because remember, we talked about just asking, is it right or wrong? Is not enough? Because there are many things in life that are not sinful. They're not wrong, but they distract you. They pull you away from Jesus. And so the question we ask, we need to ask is not, is this sinful? Now that's a good question, but we can't stop there because if it is wrong, then we know that we avoid that. But we need to ask ourselves, is this thing that I'm doing or this thing that I want to do or this thing that I want to own, all of these things, is it going to feed my love for Jesus or is it going to tend to pull me away from him? That's the question that we learned we have to ask. And we have to, we have to learn to stop being managers of the flesh and be, begin pursuing those things that fuel our passion for Jesus. And that brings us to the last church of the seven churches of the book of Revelation. It's the church in the city of Laodicea. Probably right there with Ephesus, maybe the most famous one of all because of what is said. Uh, because Ephesus is very famous because we all know the verse about you've left your first love. But Laodicea is where we discover room temperature Christianity. So let's look at the city and the church of Laodicea. The, the first thing I want you to know is that, and this, you have to understand some background to even begin to understand what Jesus is saying here. You need to know that Laodicea was a very, very wealthy city. By the way, I'll say this. Of all the seven churches, this is the church that I believe bears the, the most resemblance to the, to the church in the United States of America and therefore, maybe the one that we as a, in America, we need to pay attention to the most. And you'll understand that a lot more as we move on. Laodicea was a very, very wealthy city. It, it was originally built as a fortress, 
but it was not a very good fortress at all. And the reason was because it had no natural water supply within the city limits. We'll talk about that in just a, a moment. And, but when the Roman Empire brought peace to the region, Laodicea found itself in a position to prosper. And the reason was because the road that Rome built that linked Asia with Rome ran right straight through the center of town and, and it became an important banking and commercial center. Very, this is, you see some of the similarities. This is why I feel like this church resembles the United States, the church of the United States more than any others because they were in living in a place, the church was in a city that was abundantly wealthy. And, and they were, they were very independently minded because of their wealth. Does that, again, sound like an American? We're very independently minded. In fact, in Laodicea, there was an earthquake at one point in time that brought great destruction to the city. And of course, you know, back then they didn't, they didn't have the technology to build their buildings earthquake proof or anything like that. And so it came and it brought this immense destruction to the city of Laodicea and Rome contacted them because by that time they were a part of the Roman empire and Rome said, Hey, we will help pay. We will help rebuild your city. You're an important city in our empire. So we'll help you. And they actually refused Rome's offer to help them re rebuild. They rebuilt the city on their own using their own money. That's how independently minded and how proud, proud they were. And with that setting in mind, let's read Revelation chapter three, beginning with verse 14. This is what it says. To the angel of the church at Laod in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness. Now, I want to stop there for just a second because when Jesus says that he is the faithful and true witness, he is saying that what he's about to say is the truth, even if you think it, it isn't the truth, even if, even if it doesn't appear to be that the, the case. Jesus is constantly showing us how things really are in the deepest parts of the universe. Because you know what? We usually get it wrong. We think, we think things are one way in the world, but then Jesus often says, no, no, that's not it. Let me show you how things really are. I'll give you a simple example. Take leadership, for example. We, in our natural humanity, we, we tend to think of leadership. Uh, we, when we think of a person that's in leadership, we think of someone who exercises authority over others. If you have authority, then you tell others what to do and they better do it. But Jesus redefined that when he, when he told the disciples that if they wanted to be great in the kingdom of God, then they must learn to serve one another, serve one another like slaves. So what Jesus is saying there, he's not saying to them, Hey, let me show you an alternative way to live and to lead. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, he's saying, no, let me show you how it really is. What leadership really means. This is what leadership is. This other idea is not right. So here Jesus says, I'm getting ready to tell you something that you may not like, but I want you to know it's true. So let, let's keep reading. Start again in verse 14. To the angel of the, of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds that you are neither hot, excuse me, neither cold nor hot. I wish you, you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm, I'm, about to, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now I'll say this. This is a passage of scripture that I think has been largely misunderstood in, in, our, in our lifetime in the church in America. I, I've heard it taught, and maybe you've heard this thing too, that hot means that you're like on fire for God, what, whatever that means. I always think about, there was a, a cartoon I saw once where a secretary was holding the phone, was saying to the pastor through the door, he's saying, this is Ripley's, believe it or not, and they're wanting to know if they can get a picture of somebody on fire for God. So we, we use that term, and we think that's what hot means, and, and then we say cold means that you're just distant to him, that you're far from him. And I really honestly struggled with that whole interpretation for a long time, because I, when I hear that, my question is, why would God say that it's better to be far from him than to know him and just be lukewarm in that? Why would that make sense? I couldn't, I could understand the hot part that it's good to be hot on fire for God, but, but why would he rather have me 
as far from him as possible. That never made sense. I, I mean, think about it. A lukewarm person under that scenario is actually closer to God than the cold person. So it never made sense to me. And, and so uh, to understand what Jesus is saying to the church in Laodicea, what we have to do is we actually have to understand something about the water supply of the city. Because in every one of these, we haven't gotten into a lot of this in this series, but in every one of these, Jesus uh, connects his message to them to something very specific about the city. So the, the, the thing about the water supply of the city of Laodicea is that the city of Laodicea had no natural water supply at all. The only water available to the city had to be brought in using an aqueduct. And, and by the way, that's, as I mentioned earlier, that's what made it such a lousy fortress because all any, any enemy had to do was just cut off the water supply, break the aqueduct down, and then sit back and wait. Because eventually, if you're not getting any water, you're coming out. So it was made it a terrible, terrible fortress. And so there, there were no clean, fresh water sources nearby. In fact, the only source of water anywhere that was drinkable was actually... Uh, 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 it was, it was, it, the water had to come from hot springs, not Arkansas, but has from some hot springs that were about five miles to the south of Laodicea. So the Laodiceans, they built this aqueduct, aqueduct that ran from these hot springs to carry the water to the city. But the problem was this. The problem was that by the time the water reached the city of Laodicea, it was no longer hot but it also hadn't had enough time to get cool. It was the water rope flowing in was guess what? Lukewarm. And when Jesus said to them, you're neither cold nor hot, the church in Laodicea knew exactly what he was talking about because they knew what their water was like. They knew exactly what, what he was saying. He was saying, you're just like the water that flows into your city. You're not hot, you're not cold, you're disgustingly lukewarm. In fact, when he said that he was gonna spit them out of his mouth, the literal meaning is, is that their lukewarmness made him want to throw up. I don't know, have any of you ever tried to drink lukewarm water? I mean, I'm not talking about even room temperature. I'm talking about a little warmer than that. And I don't mean sip it. I mean really drink it. I remember one time when I was a kid, um, both of my parents worked pretty much my whole life, my whole childhood that I can remember. And, uh, and during the summer when school was out, my parents would take me over to my grandmother's house and we would uh, go there every weekday all through the summer. And I remember one time my younger brother and I, we were outside playing. We were always outside playing. It's uh, something that's very foreign to the kids nowadays, but we were always outside playing. And I remember we came in, we were really thirsty. It was, you know, and it's like it, it not, not quite as warm as here, but Kansas City gets hot and humid. And so we were really thirsty. We, we, we came inside. We're going to get a drink of water. Of course, we didn't have bottled water back then. You didn't have cold water. You know, you just got it right out of the tap and you drank it right out of the tap. And so we were so thirsty that we just could not wait for that water to cool off. Because I don't know if you've ever been in that situation when you turn the water on in the cold, at first it's just kind of blah, it's lukewarm. And so we were so thirsty that we, we were not gonna wait for that water to get cold. So we did that and we took this great big giant gulp of it. And as soon as we did, we realized that it set off a gag reflex. I don't know if you've ever done that. Uh, but, but we did that and we discovered that. And so what my, what my younger brother and I did was we decided to have a contest to see who could drink the most lukewarm water without throwing up. And, and I know every woman in this room is saying, that's right, that sounds about right. I just don't understand boys. Uh, and, and neither do I, I can't explain it. Uh, you know, I'm not sure what it says about us that we were having this wonderful, wonderful time and laughing and having a great time drinking something that put us on the verge of a technical, technicolor yawn. You know, I, I don't understand that, but, but, but this is what Jesus is talking about. He said that their lukewarmness, it was like trying to drink that water and it was about to make him puke. Now, this is the point historically where I'm supposed to tell you, okay, now don't be lukewarm. 
And we all hear it and we're like, yeah, I'm not going to be lukewarm anymore. And then, but the problem is we don't have any clue what that means. So we go home and try to drum up some religious zeal and get excited and have this emotional response. And we're like, I'm not going to be lukewarm. And somebody says, what do you mean? We say, I don't know, but I'm not going to do it. But here's the thing. We need to understand what he's saying here. What does this mean? When Jesus refers to being cold or hot, he's saying, that both cold and hot are good. They're both good. It's the lukewarm that's bad. He's not saying that cold is bad, that hot is great, and lukewarm is terrible. He's saying that cold and hot are both desirable, but lukewarm is disgusting. Here's what we need to understand. In the region, there were two cities nearby. One was the city of Colossae, which, which we, we see, we, Paul wrote a letter to the church there, the book of Colossians, and the others was the city of Hierapolis. Now, in Colossae, there was a clear and pure stream that flowed directly through the city, and it was this cold water, it was refreshing, it was clean water to drink. Have you ever been really, really thirsty, and you just really wanted a nice cold drink of water? You ever been there? Probably everybody has. I remember... Uh, going down to uh, El Salvador on missions trips and uh, it's very hot and humid down there and and their whole ministry that we went to take part of I was leading a group of teenagers and they're great at this sort of thing but uh, we uh, what we had to do is we had to learn these actions that went along with these pre-recorded songs that were played in Spanish and they would play the songs on this like cassette tape and we would act out and do motions with it and different things like that. And, and so what, we, what we'd do is we'd all be piled into this bus, no air conditioning and, uh, you know, just windows down. And so you're just waiting to get moving to get the air flowing. And, and we would pile in the bus and we would drive to some part of a city or village somewhere. And usually on the street somewhere, we would, we would just stop and we'd get out of the bus and then we'd set up this sound system and then we would put on this program consisting of these songs and then a, and a local, uh, uh, an El Salvadoran uh, evangelist then would give some sort of message about Jesus. But the, the deal was, it was really hot and it was really, really humid. And, and not only was it really hot and really humid, but I was an overweight, out of shape white man trying to do aerobics by the side of the road to songs that I couldn't understand. You know, so here I was in this sweltering heat and oppressive humidity, and I'm trying to do this without killing myself, you know. So, so let me tell you something, though. Whenever we finished one of those programs, they had the, we can't drink the water there, so they had their own supply. But I, when we were done, I could not wait to get a drink of that cold, clear, clean water. When you're really hot, you're really dehydrated, when your body really needs water, there is nothing like uh, getting a long, cold drink of pure, refreshing water. Everybody's getting thirsty now, I know it. And, and, and that's what they had in the city of Colossae, but they didn't have it in Laodicea. And then you move to another city that was nearby, and, and that was the city of Heropolis. And the city of Heropolis was actually famous for the hot springs that were within the city. We, you know, we, they were, we have hot springs, Arkansas. They had hot springs, Asia in Hierapolis there. And, and, and the local religions believed that these hot springs actually had medicinal powers. They believed that these hot springs were good for your health. I mean, and, and even as, aside from any kind of uh, medicinal help, we all know, we, how many of you ever enjoyed the therapeutic effects of sitting in hot springs or sitting in a hot tub? Have you ever been there? Man, it feels so good, doesn't it? All the, 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 the tension goes away and it's just so wonderful. And, and so here's what we see here. Jesus is looking at this and the Laodiceans know all of these things. The hot waters of, of Hierapolis were, were medicinal. They, they were considered healing. And the cold waters of Colossae were pure and life-giving. Then you had the lukewarm water in Laodicea that was barely even drinkable. 
And when Jesus says he wishes that you were either cold or hot, he's saying, I wish you were like the, the, the cold water of Colossae, that I wish you, you had lives that were pure and life-giving. I wish that, that your lives brought refreshment and strength to the people around you. Or he says, or I wish you were like the hot springs of Hierapolis. I wish that, that healing flowed out of your life. And Jesus was in effect saying, I want life and I want healing to flow from you, and none of that is happening. You know, it's so easy to get caught up in our own little world, isn't it? And, and we never, to the point where we never bring life and healing to people around us. So easy to get caught up in our own problems that we don't pay attention, don't see the people around us that are hurting, that we could actually minister to if we paid attention. And as we said a few weeks ago, if we didn't become so self-absorbed that we focus just on ourselves? Have you ever seen anyone overreact to a minor incident? See, because when, when we get, get self-absorbed, what happens is we, we just don't realize, we don't see how many people around us are desperately hurting. And I'm here to tell you there are a lot of people in your life that you know that are desperately hurting. They may do their best to hide it, but they're hurting. Now, I ask the question, have you, ever, have you ever seen anyone overreact to a minor incident? Like maybe a parent that explodes on a child when they do something that children do, like spill their milk at a meal? You know, like they did it on purpose? Like, uh, uh, forget you, Dad, blah! You know, like they, like they were just trying to have this act of rebellion by spilling their milk or something? Or, or, or maybe... You know, uh, you've been, you've been hurt by someone for no apparent reason and, 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 and you, you've, you've just had that experience where they're just lashing out at you and you're just trying to figure out what is going on here. What did I do? You know, it was, it was like the straw that broke the camel's back or something. And usually when those kind of things happen is what happens is our response is typically pretty self-centered. Because what we do is like, Hey, I didn't do anything to, to deserve that. Why don't you just shut your pie hole there, buddy? And we want to defend ourselves. But did it ever occur to you that people today are desperate? Did it ever occur to you today that there are people out there that have tried everything the world said would bring life and joy and peace to them, and they're still dead and still uh, lifeless and still have no peace? And now they just don't know what to do because they've tried it all and it didn't work. There's still the emptiness there. Someone once said, hurting people hurt people. What would happen if we began to respond with words of life, words of encouragement, words of healing, instead of words of anger or simply ignoring them? Now listen, here's what I know. I know that is a beautiful, almost romantic idea that is very, very difficult to live out. Because in that moment, when they come at me for no reason, it is really hard not to come back at them with my own anger. Is there, anybody relate with that? Yeah, it's really hard. Nevertheless, that's what Jesus wants. He wants me to learn to respond to them, to their anger, with love and compassion. Boy, that's hard. Jesus wants the life and the healing that we receive from him to flow through us to other people. And if you've ever tried to do this, it doesn't take long to realize that not only is this really, really hard, the truth is it's impossible in your own strength. Jesus said in, in John chapter 7, Jesus stood and said with a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So there are two things that are happening here in this passage. First of all, the first thing that happens is we drink from Jesus' well and he gives us life, real life. But then after that, what does he say? After that happens, after we drink from him, we drink and we, we receive the living water, we receive that kind of life. After that, he says that that water should flow out of us. He flows out from us. And what is Jesus talking about? Well, verse 39 clears it right up for us. 
By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were later to receive. So this is not about you being strong enough or, or being good enough or being self-controlled enough where you say the right thing instead of lashing out in anger. This is about you allowing the Holy Spirit to, 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 to let the life that He has done and the work that He's done in you flow out of you so that what He has done in you and forgiving you, you can let flow to other people. This is not about what you can do. This is about what the Spirit can do in us and through us. Life and healing flow from the Spirit of God. Listen to these verses, John 6, 63. The Spirit alone gives eternal life. Romans 8, 11, The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living within you. And, and 2 Corinthians 3, 6, The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So it's life, it's the life-giving Spirit of God that He wants to flow through us. And it's not about what we can do. It's not about our ability. It's not about whether we're strong enough. And there's the problem in the church of Laodicea. Because the church in Laodicea had no life, no healing flowing through them. And the reason was, and we're going to read this and we'll, you'll see this. The reason was, was because they were relying on their own resources and their own strength. They didn't th think they even needed the Holy Spirit. They didn't, they didn't need Jesus. They had become self-sufficient. Let me tell you something. There are a lot of churches in America right now that we can do church and we don't need Jesus at all. We're really good at doing church. Really good at it. Look at Revelation 3, verse 17. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But do, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. The first thing I want you to see here is that the church in Laodicea is the exact opposite of the church in Smyrna. Remember what Jesus said to the church in Smyrna, Revelation 2, 9. He said to them, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. In Laodicea, he's saying, you say you're rich, but I'm telling you, you better come to me for some real wealth because you are not wealthy at all. Jesus in Smyrna said, I know that you're living in abject poverty. You're the poorest of the poor but you're really rich. And Jesus said that they had this soul wealth that goes way beyond this world. And in Laodicea, Jesus said, you say you're rich, but I say you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. They had wealth. Dare I say it? They had options. They looked like they had it all. But Jesus said they had nothing. In fact, the very things they thought were their strengths, Jesus saw as their weaknesses. See, here's what we have to see to understand what was going on, to understand what he's saying. Laodicea, as we already said, was a wealthy banking center. But Jesus said they needed to buy gold from him because they were not wealthy. Laodicea was also famous for this black wool that was used to create garments. So it was, it was prized and, and it was well known throughout the world about this particular fabric that would come, this wool that would come from Laodicea. And, and it was famous for that. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. You need to buy white cloth for me. You need to be, buy white clothing for me to cover your nakedness. So what you're famous for, this clothing from this black wool, he's saying, no, 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 you don't have that. You're naked. Laodicea was also famous for an eye salve that was exported all over the world. It was a supposed healing and people would buy it. it would they would send it to all over the world and they would use it. They put this eye salve on people and it was supposed to help heal their eyes. And Jesus said, hey, 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 you know what? You're trying to heal other people's blindness, but the problem is you're blind. You better get salve for me if you really want to see because your salve is worthless. 
What you have is worthless. What you can do is worthless. What you can afford is worthless. Come to me. But you know the worst thing of all with Laodicea? The worst part of all was that Jesus was on the outside looking in and they didn't even know it. What do I mean? Look at verse 20. This is a verse, and I, and I, and I understand using it this way, but this is a verse that is, is misunderstood because we use it a lot of times to try to talk to people who don't know Christ and say, hey, you need to open the door of your heart and let Jesus come in. But this verse was not written to unbelievers. This verse was written to a church that thought they had it all together. And he said, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. That is a very sobering verse when we realize he was not talking to me when I was a sinner. But it, and now, now it's true, even as a sinner, I can open the door and say, come in. But this is a verse that he's speaking to a church. He's speaking to a church that says, man, we are wealthy. We got it all together. We don't need anything. This is great. And Jesus says, wait a minute. Don't you hear me knocking? I'm on the outside. I'm not in there with you. You're trying to do this on your own. I'm on the outside. I'm knocking on the door. Won't you open the door? Won't you let me in? I've got a feast for you. I've got, I've got gold for you to buy. I've got this ISEV. You'll be able to see what you really think you see, but you've never seen before. You're going to be able to clothe yourself in my righteousness. Just open the door. Let me in. That's the most frightening thing of all they were they were going along they were doing church they were playing the game they were wearing their mask and they were completely blind to their true spiritual condition that jesus was on the outside looking in looking in and they they didn't even know it how could this happen how could they how could they lose the presence of jesus in their midst and not even miss it the truth is it's not the first time it happened turn to judges sixteen twenty. We all know the story of Samson. When I was a kid, it was one of my favorite stories because, you know, I mean, I like stories with superhuman strength and that sort of thing. And I love Samson's. Samson was a man who, who, upon whom the Spirit of God rested. He, he, and he, we all know he did these amazing feats of strength and power, but he had a major weakness when it came to, to women. He wanted what he was not allowed to have, what God had told him not to, to have. He wanted women who were not Israelite. And so he had this area of weakness, this blind spot in his life. And, and by the way, instead of his father correcting him, his father really never did anything. And, and so he, he eventually, we know, most of us know the story. He eventually, uh, uh, he, he, uh, fell head over heels in love with this woman named Delilah. And, and Delilah, Behind Samson's back made a deal with the Philistines, the, the arch enemies of Israel at the time. And she made a deal with them to find out the source of Samson's strength because they knew this is not normal. This is not natural human strength. There's something behind this. How in the world does he have this kind of strength? And so after multiple tries, we know the story. She finally gets Samson to admit the source of his strength and the strength came from being faithful to a vow to God. It's not just his hair. It's just that the not cutting his hair was part of that vow. It was about being faithful to the vow that was made b before God. And part of that vow was included not cutting his hair. So she, she cut his hair while he was sleeping. And that's where we pick up the story. And we read something that is one of the most horrifying and sad verses of all the Bible. Judges 20, uh, uh, Judges 16, verse 20. Then she called Samson after she cut his hair. The Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. They tied him up with these ropes when they cut his hair. He's like, hey, no big deal. I've done this before. I'm going to do it before. But look at that last sentence. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. See, when we mess around, when we play with sin, when we, when we swim in lukewarm water, so to speak, when we do it long enough, eventually, when the Spirit of God is no, no longer there, 
we have lived outside of his presence for so long that we don't even notice it and we don't even care. And the church in Laodicea was going through the motions, but there was no life, there was no healing, there was no Jesus. They lost sight of who this is all about, not what it's about, who this is about. And if Jesus isn't even in their midst, then the real question is, why keep doing all the things that, that they were doing? Why, why go to church if Jesus is not there? Why listen to preaching? Why pray? Why do any of this? Well, could it be that sometimes we do all the right things, not because we have the life of the Spirit flowing through us, but because it looks good? Because we know that's what is expected of us. We know the things that are expected of a quote-unquote good Christian. So we do those things. And we're able to fool everybody into thinking that we're just fine. But the question is, are we living what we're hearing? Or are we just going through the motions? I think the question for us is why... Do we do what we do? This is a question that haunts me as a pastor, and I'm constantly wondering where we are as a church and praying that God will take us further and do new things. But the question is, how much of this stuff are we living? When we hear the Word of God on Sunday, how much of it do we live out on Monday? How much of this are we putting into action? You know, we as a church, we're reading through the Bible, and I, I'm so happy that so many of you are doing that, and it's been great. I've been enjoying it a, a lot in my own life, but the question is not how much of the Word am I getting in me. The question is how much of that Word am I putting into action in my life? Listen to what God said to the prophet Ezekiel. So my people come pretending to be sincere and sit before you, they listen to your words, but they have no intention of doing what you say. Their mouths are full of lustful words and their hearts seek only after money. You are very entertaining to them, like someone who sings love songs with a beautiful voice or plays fine music on an instrument. They hear what you say, but they don't act on it. That, my friend, is my greatest nightmare as your pastor. I want us to be real, not just look the part. I don't want us to become like the church in Laodicea where we're wealthy and we think we can handle that we can do all we need to do and we forget this is all about Jesus. We cannot do this, not even as, not just as a church, but even individually. We cannot do what Jesus wants us to do in our own strength using our own resources. We can't. We are utterly and completely dependent on Him. Period. You know, if you fill up a glass of water, doesn't matter if it's hot or if it's cold, but if you leave that water sitting out on the countertop, what happens to it eventually? It moves to room temperature. If it's cold, it'll warm up. If it's hot, it'll cool down happens it's just the way it's physics and the only way to keep it either hot or cold is to keep doing something to make sure it stays hot or cold you have to replace some of the lukewarm water with either cold water or hot water it's the only way you can do it i mean uh, i guess you could put it on a stove but then your glass is going to break but or melt if it's plastic but listen, I don't want us to get so used to the temperature, temperature of the world around us that we forget why we're here. You know, we, we can be one of two things in the world. We can be a thermometer or a thermostat. What's the difference? Well, a thermometer is affected by the atmosphere. And the thermometer reacts to the temperature and rises the mercury in there or whatever it is they use nowadays rises to that temperature and it shows you what the temperature is but that's not what a th what a thermostat does is it thermostat 
changes the atmosphere. I want to make sure that in doing everything in my power, I want to make sure we don't become thermometers, but we become thermostats used by the Spirit of God. I, I, I don't want us to forget why we're here, who we serve. And we, we need to pour life and healing and comfort and encouragement on the people around us. And part of the reason we need to do that is so that Jesus can keep pouring life and healing and comfort and encouragement into us. You know, when we respond to the light that God gives us, that's when He gives us more. There's so many people out there today that are like, man, I want a new revelation. I want something new. And they're chasing after the, the newest, neatest thing, you know, the great latest prophecy, all these things. They want this new revelation, this new knowledge, this new stuff. But listen, if you want anything new from God, the, the key to it is respond to the light that He's given to you now. And when you respond to the light that He's given to you now, that's when more light will shine. And, and so in reality, when it comes to spiritual growth, the, the amount of light, the amount of truth we have at any given time is not nearly as important as what we're doing with that light. So if we want more, we need to be active with it. So why do we do the things that we do? Why do we go to church? Why do we give money away? Why do we do these, all the things that we do? Why do we sing? Why do we worship? Why do we pray? Why do we read the Bible? Is it because we're supposed to? Or we think that somehow God needs that from us? By the way, He needs nothing from you. He's, he's God. What can you possibly have that He would need? Anything you have, He created. I mean, do we, do we honestly put on our best clothes for an hour or so once a week and maybe twice a week and you know, stand and sit at all the right times and sing all the appropriate songs. Do we do that for, the, for His sake or we do that because it makes us look better and feel better? You know what? We're, we're, we're tired of all the empty rituals and routines and so is God. God hates it when we call ourselves Christians but then ignore the things that He really cares about. He hates it when we go through hollow religious routines out of some feeling of uh, sense of duty or obligation. The truth is, God does not want meaningless rituals. He wants your heart. God doesn't want you to be a church attender. He wants your heart. Now, if He has your heart, you're going to want to be with the people of God. But it's, the, it's not the other way around. He doesn't want us just going through the motions. He wants full surrender. He wants you. That's what He wants. Would you bow your head? Close your eyes. Father, as we come into Your presence right now, Lord, I, we just, we, we just want to make sure with Your help that we don't become Laodicea. We live in this land of plenty, this land of great wealth. But God, we are here and we want to be very, very clear in, in, in pronouncing the truth. And that is, we do not have what it takes. We are not wealthy enough to change this world. We cannot bring life and healing to anybody around us in our own strength. We cannot rely on our own uh, abilities and resources that has to come from you. And God, those times when we begin to rely on our own abilities, our own strength, whether it's as a church or as individuals, I pray God in those moments, you would remind us that you want us to be hot or cold, but not to get to that place where, where, we, where we just can't be swallowed anymore by your, by your spirit, that you just can't take it anymore. I pray, Lord, that we would remember Remember why we're here, why we do what we do, who we serve. And remember that that life that you want to, and healing that you want to flow through us cannot be accomplished. It cannot be uh, pushed forth or spread around with our own strength, with our own resources, with our own abilities. We are completely dependent upon you. 
And God, I pray you would just help us as you spoke to some of the other churches. Help us to go back to the beginning. Help us to find that first love, Lord God, so that so that we would remember what, you, what you've done and how you've healed us, how you've changed us. And God, that as you do that in our lives, that we'll let that flow through us and we'll touch the lives of other people around us. And God, those moments when other people uh, needlessly attack or they say things that are hurtful, and God, I pray you would just teach us. Teach us, Lord God, to deny our own flesh, to hold our tongue for just long enough to be able to hear your voice saying, hey, you need to speak words of life. You need to speak words of healing. You need to speak words of comfort. You need to find out if something's wrong, if there's something going on. So, and you need to, you need to speak those kind of words because your words have power. And Lord, I pray you'd help us. Change us. Help your life and your healing to flow through us. Help your spirit to flow through us. Help us, God, not to ever become dependent on ourselves, but to always remain dependent upon you. With heads bowed and eyes closed, and there's nobody looking around, I just want to know if there's anybody here and say, Pastor Dave, I just want you to pray for me. Pray that God will keep me dependent upon him, because if you're like me, it's really easy to begin to pay more attention to my bank account and how I'm going to pay my bills than the God who supplies all my needs. It's easier for me to respond in anger than it is to let the Spirit use me to speak words of life. I I don't know. I don't know where you are. I don't know what area of this message the Lord spoke to you about, but, but if He is dealing with you today, the most important thing you can do is acknowledge that. So today, before we leave this place, if you'd say, Pastor, I just want you to pray for me. I hear God talking to me. I hear Him speaking to me. And I don't want to become lukewarm. I want to, I want to respond to what He's saying. And if that's you, would you slip your hand up right where you are? Yes, all over the place. Their hands all over the place. The vast majority of people raise their hands. So I want you to know you're not alone. This is the church. This is what I, the message I believe God is wanting to speak to the church in America, and that's part. We're part of that. Would you just bow with your head bowed? Just I want. I just want to pray for you, Father. I thank you for every open heart in this place. And God, we we want to be people who please you. We want to be authentic disciples who live this thing out. We don't want to just gain more knowledge and more information. But God, we want to walk in the light that you have given us so that you can give us more light later. We want to pour out life and healing and encouragement and comfort to people around us so that, God, you can continue to pour those things into our lives. God, we just pray you would just make us useful. Make us life-giving not just as a church, but each one of us in the workplace, in our homes, in our families. Let us be those kind of people, God. And we know that that's not going to happen just because we try hard. God, we, we know that we need the transforming work of your Holy Spirit to do that. So we just surrender to you one more time. Remind us of who we were. Remind us of where you brought us from. Lord, help us to fall on our faces before you again in complete surrender, offering ourselves to you. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.